Chapter 37. Several days later, when Susan and I went into the village, I stopped at the pub to say hello to Daisy. Oh, dearie, said her mother, pulling me against her and kissing the top of my head. I've sent her away, she said. To Susan, she added, you'd better send yours too. The village was evacuating its own children. Across the channel, Hitler's army waited, less than 30 miles away. He invaded the channel in islands, Guernsey and Jersey, which belonged to England. The Channel Islands surrendered. Kent, which was part of England where we were, was the closest bit to the German army in France. When Hitler invaded, he would land in Kent. Susan said nothing to Daisy's mother, but later told Jamie and me not to worry. If our mother wanted us to go somewhere else, that was one thing. But until Susan heard from our mother, we were staying put. A few days later, Lady Thornton came to try to make Jamie and me go. All the other evacuees and nearly all the village children were leaving. The WVS, Lady Thornton said, would find a home for us somewhere safe. Their mother won't know where they are, Susan protested. Of course she will, Lady Thornton said. I'll see that you give, get their new address, and whenever she contacts you, you can pass it on. Susan hesitated. I'm not sure. Lady Thornton's nose narrowed the way it did when she was angry. There will be an invasion, she said in a tightly clipped tone. German soldiers in our streets, in our homes, war in our streets, quite possibly. The children should be as far away as we can send them. Margaret isn't coming home this summer. She's going straight to her new school. I felt a pang of regret. I'd been expecting to see Maggie soon. Lady Thornton said, you must send them away. Beneath the regret came a bigger wave of emotion, coiling up, rising in my gut. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I looked out the window and frantically tried to think of butter. Things worse than bombs, Susan was saying. Lady Thornton shook her head. War is no time for sentiment. Is it sentiment, Susan asked? Her voice sounded far away behind the humming in my ears. Susan put a hand on my shoulder. Look at them, Susan said. Look at Ada. If she gets put with the wrong person, she'll go right back to where she was. I shook my head, struggling to stay with them, to hear them above my increasing panic. But Lady Thornton didn't reply. When I risked a glance at her, she was staring at Susan with an expression I couldn't read. She isn't easy, Susan said, and I'll fight for her. I do fight for her. Someone has to. At last, Lady Thornton spoke. I see. She said quietly, I'm not sure you're correct, but I see what you're saying. But the boy, no, Susan said, separating them would kill them both. When Lady Thornton had left, Susan sat Jamie and me down beside her on the sofa. She said, listen, I am not sending you away. She talked a long time after that. I heard nothing beyond the words, not sending you away. The wave inside me flattened out. I could breathe again. How do you feel about it? Susan asked me. How do I feel? I had no idea. I didn't know the words to explain. I was choking and now I can breathe. Susan waited for me to say something. I still felt dizzy, overwhelmed. I swallowed. I guess I'd rather stay here, I said. Good, Susan said, because I'm not giving you a choice. Susan had been right that all the green leaves and grass came back in summertime. The weather was glorious. Butter's pasture reached his knees 
and the vegetables in our victory garden thrived. Fred found an old bicycle in one of the sheds at Thornton House and fixed it up for Jamie to ride. School had closed for good since most of the children were gone, so Jamie came with me every day to help Fred. The former gardener had proved useless around horses, frightened of them, and therefore inclined to smack them around. He'd been called up anyhow. Fred was alone again. Lady Thornton had sold two horses and put down three more who were past being ridden, but that still felt a lot of work to left a lot of work to do. The best pastures had been taken over for crops. The government sent land girls to take the place of the enlisted male farm workers. They moved into the old stable boys' apartments, but they only helped with the farming on the estate, not the horses. Horses aren't important these days, said Fred. Jamie was finally permanently and completely banned from the airfield. They were too busy to have him around. Planes took off in bunches all day and all night. We could see them high in the sky, tiny specks patrolling the channel, watching, waiting for the invasion that would come. I struggled to fall asleep in the long, bright summer nights. Jamie and Bavril snored in unison, loudly. One night, when the noise grew too loud to bear, I crept downstairs to the slightly darker living room. Susan sat on the sofa, her legs curled beneath her, staring into nothing. It was not the deep, sad staring from the year before. Can't sleep, she asked when she saw me. I shook my head. Susan patted the sofa beside her. I walked across the room and stood in front of her, my good foot and the crutch tips deep in the plush rug, the toes of my bad foot barely brushing the ground. Everyone still thinks I should send you away, Susan said. I nodded. Lady Thornton said so often. I went to Susan's WVS meeting sometimes to help sew, and Lady Thornton made a noise in the back of her throat every time she saw me. Part of me does agree, Susan continued. I know they mean well, but I also understand how now why some of the mothers from London took their evacuated children back so soon. Some things you've got to face as a family. Hitler was in Paris. He could be in London next week. For the longest time, Susan went on, I thought I was neglecting you. I didn't take care of you the way my mother took care of my brothers and me. My mother watched me all the time. She always kept me neatly dressed. She ironed my shoelaces. She would never have let you run wild the way I have. But now when I look at you, I think I didn't do so badly. I think you wouldn't have liked being raised the way my mother raised me. What do you think, Ada? I sat down on the sofa. I never know, I said. When I'm not thinking, everything's clear in my head. But as soon as I try to look at it, I get confused. I leaned against the back of the sofa. I understand, Susan said. Sometimes I feel like that, too. I leaned my head against her the tiniest bit. She didn't move. I leaned a little bit more. She put her arm around my shoulders so that I was nestled against her. As I drifted into sleep, I thought I felt her lips brush the top of my head. The first air raid was worse than Christmas Eve. Chapter 38. It came the second week of July. It had been a hot day, so we had kept the windows wide open and the blackout down. For once, I'd fallen into a sound, dreamless sleep. Whoop, 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 whoop. The sirens at the airfield wailed louder and louder, louder. You'd have thought one was in our bedroom. Jamie jumped up, scrambling to keep hold of Bavril, who thrashed and scratched in an effort to get free. I grabbed my crutches. 
Susan came flying in, her dressing gown flapping. Hurry, hurry, she said. I couldn't hurry. Going downstairs took time. My hand shook. I wouldn't be fast enough. I would be bombed. Jamie ran ahead, but Susan waited for me. It's all right, she said. Don't panic. Across the living room, out the back door, Jamie ducked into the Anderson shelter and stuffed Bavril into his basket. The cat howled. He sounded like a baby screaming in pain. I stood at the door of the shelter. I'd never yet gone inside. I hated it. It scared me. It was so much like the cabinet under the sink at home, the one with the roaches. I could never see them or stop them. Ada, Susan said behind me, move. I couldn't do it. I couldn't go inside. Not into that damp shelter that smelled exactly like the cabinet. Not into that darkness. Not into that pain. The siren wailed, Jamie shouted. Ada, hurry. A noise like the plane exploding. Bombs, real bombs here in Kent. German bombs everyone feared. Here in the cabinet under the sink. Susan picked me up and carried me down the stairs. The smell enveloped me. I could feel the cramped cabinet, the roaches. I could hear ma'am laughing while I screamed. I screamed, another bomb, more screams. From Jamie, from me, how would I know? The memory of the cabinet seemed real, seemed to be happening right at that moment. I could see the cabinet, feel myself being shoved inside. Terror enveloped my brain. Suddenly, I felt something tight around me, a blanket, a rough wool blanket. Susan wrapped me in it the way she had at Christmas Eve, tight, round and round. Shh, she said, shh. She put her arms around me and laid me on a bench and then half sat on me, squishing me between her backside and the shelter wall. We're all here. We're safe, she said. She took Jamie onto her lap. It's okay, Jamie. She's just frightened. It's okay. Jamie whimpered. We're safe, Susan said. It's okay. The pressure of the blanket soothed me. Gradually, I came back to the shelter, to Jamie and Susan. I stopped screaming. My heart didn't pound so hard. I breathed the smell of the wool blanket, wet from my tears, instead of the shelter cabinet darkness. From outside, we heard another blast farther away and the ac ac from the anti-aircraft guns at the airfield. We're okay, Susan said wearily. We're okay. When the all clear sounded two hours later, Susan and I were still wide awake. Jamie had fallen asleep on Susan's lap. She carried him back to the house. I walked beside her, trailing the blanket like a cape. We lay down in the living room, too worn out to climb the stairs. Late the next morning when we woke, Susan said, Ada, there will be more bombs. We will have to go into the shelter. You'd better get used to it. I shuddered. I couldn't imagine doing that again. What set you off? Susan asked. Ma'am's cabinet, the way it smells. I made myself go somewhere else in my head fast before panic overwhelmed me. Butter, I imagined writing butter. Susan tapped my chin. We can change the smell. She went to the market and bought aromatic herbs, rosemary, lavender, and sage. She hung them in the shelter upside down from the edges of the benches, and their smell filled the little room even after they were crumbly and dry. I could smell, I couldn't smell the dampness anymore. It helped. I still panicked. Susan still always wrapped me in a blanket, but usually I could keep from screaming and I didn't actually see the cabinet in my head. It was still awful, but I didn't, it, I didn't frighten Jamie. That was important because we went into the shelter nearly every night from that first time. The Battle of Britain had begun. 
Hitler had figured out he couldn't land his invading army until he'd conquered the Royal Air Force. Otherwise, our planes would bomb his ships and troops while they were landing. Once he'd gotten rid of our planes, invading England would be easy. The Germans had a lot more airplanes and pilots than the British did. They had different kinds of planes, though, and their fighter planes had shorter ranges than ours. This meant that they could only reach the southeastern corner of England before they had to turn back for more fuel. They could only shoot our planes and bombs, our airfields in Kent. The airfields were their main targets. Every plane they destroyed, whether in the air or parked on the ground, brought them one step closer to invasion. Every airway, every runway they destroyed gave our pilots one less place to safely land. Our airfield was hit that very first day. The bombs ripped through two storage sheds and left craters the size of small tanks in the grass runways. Fortunately, all the air crews found shelter. Once the all-clear sounded, the crews worked through the night, shoveling debris into the blast holes. By morning, planes could safely land again. It was July, and the world was green and lovely. I rode butter through fields of waving grass up our hill to where I could see the blue sea glittering in the bright sunlight. Wild roses grew in the hedgerows, and the air felt heavy with their scent. The breeze blew, and I could feel perfectly happy, except that now I always watch for planes as well as spies. They hadn't come in daylight yet, but I knew they could. Susan didn't like me riding out, but she didn't want to forbid it either. Our home was so close to the airfield, I figured I was safer farther away. When I said so, she looked grim. I should send you away, she said. It was hard enough to cope with Susan. How would I ever cope without her? What if we got sent back home? I stared at the tips of my shoes. I can't leave butter, I said. Susan sighed. You survived without a pony in London. I lifted my gaze to look at her. I had survived. Maybe. Could I do it again? Back in that one room? I hadn't known all I was missing. I know, Susan said softly. It's why I'm keeping you here. There's things worse than bombs, I said, remembering what I'd heard her say before. I think so, Susan said. And Kent's a big place. They can't bomb every inch of it. But she looked out the window toward the airfield, and her eyes creased with worry. Chapter 39. Nights in the shelter, night after night. It was impossible to sleep through the explosions and the gunfire. Susan had a flashlight, but flashlights needed batteries, and batteries were hard to find. Instead, she lit a candle inside a flower pot. And by its dim light read to us, Peter Pan, A Secret Garden, The Wind in the Willows. Some were books she got from the library. Others came from her own bookshelves. On his own, Jamie was reading Swiss Family Robinson over again. We're like them, he said one night, as the candlelit flicker, candlelight flickered off the shelter's tin walls. We're in our cave, safe and warm. I shuddered. I had wrapped myself in a sheets because it was too hot for a blanket. I felt warm, but not safe. I never felt safe in the shelter. You are, though, Susan said. You feel safer in your bedroom, but you're actually much safer in the shelter. It didn't matter how I felt. She made me go into the shelter every time the sirens wailed. Men came and removed all the signposts from the roads around the village so that when Hitler invaded, he wouldn't know where he was. When he invaded, we were to bury our radio. Jamie had already dug a hole for it in the garden. 
When Hitler invaded, we were to say nothing, do nothing to help the enemy. If he invaded while I was out riding, I was to return home at once, as fast as possible by the shortest route. I'd known it was, I know it was an invasion, not an air raid, because all the church bells would ring. What if the Germans take butter, I asked Susan. They won't, she said, but I was sure she was lying. Bloody Huns, Fred muttered when I went to help with chores. They come here, I'll stab them with a pitchfork, I will. Fred was not happy. The riding horses, the Thornton's fine hunters, were all out to grass, and the grass was good, but the hayfields had been turned over to wheat, and Fred didn't know how he'd feed the horses through the winter. Plus, the land girls stayed in the loft, staying in the loft annoyed him. Work 12 hours a day, then go out dancing, he said, bunch of lightfoots. In my day, girls didn't act like that. I thought the land girls seemed friendly, but I knew better than to say so to Fred. You could get used to anything. After a few weeks, I didn't panic when I went into the shelter. I quit worrying about the invasion. I put Jamie up behind me on butter, and we searched the fields for shrapnel or bullets or bombs. Once we came across an airplane shot down in a hops field. Soldiers had already surrounded it by the time we got there, and were keeping civilians away. A messer, Schmidt, Jamie said, eyes gleaming. Wonder where the pilot went. The pilot had bailed out. The plane's canopy was open. Caught him, one of the soldiers said, overhearing. Prisoner of war, no troubles. One day in early August, Susan went to the WBS meeting. Jamie was tending the garden. He loved it. And I took off on butter for my daily ride. I went to the top of the hill. I paused the way I always did to search the sea and sky. No airplanes, no big boats. But then I saw something in the distance, something small on the surface of the ocean. A tiny boat, a rowboat, pulling for shore. I watched it, wondering. It was headed not for the town harbor, but for one of the barbed wire sections of the beach. Was the person lost? Surely he knew better than to land where there could be mines. I kept frowning. The man, it looked like a man, I thought, in the boat, continued to row straight for shore. Surely he could see the village from the water. Surely he knew it would be safer there. Unless, I thought, my blood running cold. He was a spy. A spy? I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. I always looked for spies from the hill. It was a habit. But that didn't mean despite the posters, despite the rumors, that I actually expected to ever see a spy. But yet, a single rowboat, so far out, where had he come from? Did he get dropped off by a submarine, a German submarine? If he wasn't a spy, why was he headed for the deserted beach? I heard Susan's voice in my head. Improbable, it said. That meant not likely. Still, it was one of the rules. Report anything suspicious at once. I turned butter down the face of the hill, weaving through brush and tall grass, trying to keep the little boat in sight. It disappeared from my view as I got lower, and I sped up, cantering along the road that led to the barricaded beach. I stopped butter in a copse of trees just as the beach came into view. It was low tide, and the sand stretched out wide and flat for a mile along the shoreline. Right in the center of the sand, the man stepped from his rowboat and carried a suitcase and had a rucksack on his back. As I watched, he shoved the rowboat back into the water. 
The sea was quiet. The boat floated high above the gentle waves and began to drift sideways following the shore. I swallowed hard. The man, an ordinary-looking man, at least from the distance, took something from his rucksack. He unfolded it and used whatever it was to dig a hole in the beach. He put the suitcase into the hole, covered the hole with sand, walked cautiously up the sand dunes toward the barbed wire. I couldn't see what happened next, but suddenly the man was on the other side of the fence, walking down the road toward me. I turned butter and galloped away. I could have gone to the airfield, but the police station was closer, and I knew where it was, near the school, near the shop where I'd had tea. I kept butter to a canter, even over the cobblestone main street. I pulled him to a halt at the station, wrapped his reins around the handrail, and hurried up the steps as best as I could. I didn't have my crutches. I think I found a spy, I said to the first person I saw, a portly man seated behind a large wooden desk. A spy on the beach. The portly man turned toward me. Get a hold of yourself, miss, he said. I can't understand you the way you're gabbling. I grabbed the edge of his desk for balance. I repeated my words. The man looked me up and down, particularly down at my bad foot in its odd homemade shoe. I fought the urge to hide it. How was it you saw the spy, he asked. He had a little smile on his face. I realized he did not believe me. I was out on my pony, I began. I told the whole story, the hill where I always kept a lookout, the little boat, the suitcase buried in the sand. On your pony, the man said, nodding, his smile widening into a smirk. Watch a lot of newsreels, do you? Listen to the scary stories on the radio? He thought I was lying, or at best exaggerating, and now he was staring at my bad foot again. I felt a wave of heat climb up my neck. I thought of what Susan would do. I drew myself up, taller, and glared at the man, and I said, My bad foot's a long way from my brain. The man blinked. I said, I would like to speak to your commanding officer. The government asks us to report anything suspicious, and that's what I'm going to do. If you won't listen, I want to talk to someone who will. The second police officer took me more seriously. We'll go in the squad car, he said. See if we can find him. He asked if I needed help getting to the car. No, thank you, I said. I walked as straight as I could manage, even though it hurt like crazy. The officer put me in the front seat beside him, and together we started down the road. We hardly gotten out of town when we came across the man I had seen, walking down the road with perfect ease. I pointed him out to the officer. You're sure, the officer asked. For a moment, I wasn't. I hadn't really gotten a close look at the man's face, but he felt like the right person. I nodded. The officer stopped his car and got out. Papers, please, he said. Release the man, in perfect English, with the accent Lady Thornton used. Why ever for? Routine, the officer said. The man raised his eyebrow, as if it were all a joke, but reached into his pocket readily enough. He pulled his identity card out of a battered leather wallet. I'm just on a bit of a walking holiday, he said, indicating the rucksack on his back. My ration card's in there if you want me to fish it out. He could not sound more English. He could not look more English. And yet, sir, I said to the officer. He came over to the window on the passenger side and leaned in. I'm sorry, miss, he said, shaking his head. But I think you've, I said, his trouser cuffs are wet and they're full of sand. No one went to the beaches anymore. No one ever. It wasn't allowed. 
The officer's smile disappeared. For a moment, I thought he was angry with me, but I was wrong. The next thing I knew, the man from the beach was handcuffed and bundled into the back of the car. He protested vehemently in his perfect English voice. Back at the station, patient Butter still stood tied to the porch rail. The officer told me to go on home. We'll handle it from here, miss. I wanted to tell Susan, but I wasn't sure how. I put it off so that I could think about it more. We were halfway through dinner that evening when the police knocked on the door. It was my second officer and another. We need to speak with your daughter, ma'am. I got up quickly. Susan looked stunned. Jamie looked delighted. We need you to help us locate the buried parcel, my officer said. So I went again in a squad car, this time all the way to the beach. I showed them where I'd stood with Butter, watching, and I tried to show them where I thought the man had landed with his boat. The tide was high now and everything looked different. We'll have to get the army to dig it up anyhow, the other officer said. For all we know, the beach is mined. He drove along the edge of the barbed wire fence. We got out near where I thought the man had gone through and walked up and down the road until we found a footprint. The officer marked it with a piece of cloth tied to the fence and then took me home. I paused before I got out of the car. Will you let me know what happens to the man? The officer shook their heads. It'll be a secret, miss. Will you let me know if he really is a spy? They looked at each other and nodded. But you're to stay quiet about it, one said. I nodded. Loose lips sink ships, I said. I went in to make my explanations to Susan. She was waiting for me on the purple sofa. She listened to the whole story. Then she put her hands on either side of my face. She smiled at me and she said, Oh, Ada, I am so proud. The very next afternoon, someone knocked on our door again. It was a police officer. Not the one who had helped me, but the fat one who'd sat at his desk and thought I was making things up. I need to apologize to your daughter, ma'am, he said. When he saw me, he swept off his hat and bowed. I should have believed you, he said. I'm sorry. A grateful nation thanks you for your service. With great ceremony, he handed me an onion.